I'm Michelle Kelly, editor of Cottage Life Magazine. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Cottage Life Podcast. It's a fun one. This episode is long on nostalgia. First off, we chat with television writer and producer Julian Doucette about his cottage-themed comedy, The Lake. In making the show, Julian mined his own cottage past for laughs and a little bit of drama. He tells us what it was like trying to recreate his childhood at the lake for the small screen, and how he worked at making every scene feel completely authentic to the culture. Then, we'll listen to an old essay that gets at some of the same ideas, specifically how we tend to treasure, and sometimes over-treasure, the knickknacks and decor we collect at our cottages. This is the Cottage Life Podcast, where every day is the weekend. First up, a word from our sponsor. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. Listen, we all have a favorite cottage moment. For me, it's waking up early to a misty lake, launching the boat, and being the only one out there. Unfortunately, the mosquitoes like to keep me company while I'm catching dinner. So to stay focused on the fish, I use off deep wood sportsman insect repellent. It uses deep for up to eight hours of non-greasy stain-free protection against mosquitoes, ticks, black flies, and deer flies. Keep it in your tackle box and off your bait, and you'll have one less reason to sleep in and miss that sunrise on the lake. The cottage country comedy, The Lake, is back. Season two of Amazon Prime's first scripted Canadian original series just dropped on June 9th. In case you missed it, season one of The Lake follows Justin, played by Jordan Gavaris, returning home to Ontario from living abroad in the hope of reconnecting with his biological daughter he gave up for adoption in his teens. When Justin finds out that his late father left the family cottage to his stepsister, Maisie May, played by Julia Stiles, he sets out to scheme her way out of the property. Hijinks and hilarity ensue. Julian Doucette is the creator, showrunner, and writer of The Lake, shot on location in and around North Bay, Ontario, cottage country. And he's here to talk to, about this fun summer series and about his own roots in cottage country. Welcome to the podcast, Julian. I'm delighted to meet you. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. I'm delighted to be here. So listen, I wanted to just start at the beginning here. What was your inspiration for the lake? Um, I know that it was sort of in part based on your own life experience. Mm -hmm. So it's, there were two pieces to it. I mean, one is uh, very heartfelt in that uh, I did have a daughter uh, early in theater school and I did uh, give her up for adoption. It was an open adoption. So, um, and we had took vacations when she was 16. We started to take vacations together. Uh, and I always thought, you know, as a screenwriter, oftentimes people are like your story, it's so unique. You should, you should do it. You should tell it. But I had always felt reticent about doing so because it was very much not just my story. It was also my daughter's story and how, mm-hmm. and I kind of wanted to wait until she was of an age where we could have that conversation. Like, is it okay if, you know, if we mine our trauma for hilarity? Is that, yeah. is that a good yeah. <laughs> are you okay with that? <laughs> yeah, we sort of like we reached that point. Um, but the second, the the cottage piece was um, our producers, Amaze, um, had uh, pitched a series to Amazon Prime, and the Amazon Prime Prime Video was uh, wanted to do 
a comedy set in cottage country. They wanted to open their first original scripted. So the, the location came sort of from a maze in Amazon. And then where I sat, I sort of imagined my going on my first vacation with my daughter uh, in cottage country. And having grown up around cottages, having so many friends who had cottages and ourselves, and it just seemed like, okay, well, what? And the biggest fights had always been around who gets the cottage, the time you can spend at the cottage, who's allowed to go. Um, it just kind of became, they, they became these temples to our childhood, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, because the scale of reactions and emotions always felt bigger than what, like, if you're changing grandma's drapes, you know, that could launch blood feuds. <laughs> you're, you're saying things that I have been talking about and writing about for years. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about my own cottage that we long since sold, but there um, was a mug in that cottage of my youngest brother, like on his like eight year old hockey team, like picture of him in his like, you know, weird mm -hmm. outfit <laughs> equipment yeah. uh, posing and the, it got on a mug somehow, my family. And that mug became like the thing that you are not allowed to touch. You are not allowed to move. It just, it like, it's like this strange thing that takes on all of this emotion and it's just a mug. It's exactly what you're talking about. And we talk about that all the time about how you, you assign so much meaning to things at the cottage, mm -hmm. which I can't imagine is the perfect sort of basis to build a show about a family because there's so many emotional minefields everywhere in a situation like that. And you never know which one it's going to be, right? Because yes. everything is so laden with meaning. And what's great about comedy is because, yes, it's about a mug, but that like if that mug breaks or somebody drinks from the wrong mug, but that mug is basically stands in for this was my childhood this was my innocence this is how much granny loved me we went on a special trip to get this yes and now you've broken it and you know i'm the only one who drinks from it like yes. don't you know me at all yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. it's so <laughs> funny that it's funny that you're starting at this point with this interview because that was actually the thing when watching the show um that really struck me and i was impressed by and i'm a tough judge in this in this particular way how the when he first goes into this is early on in season one, I think even the maybe the first episode where he goes in to his family's cottage, the cottage he grew up at, he breaks in. I hope I'm not giving yeah. too much away. And looking, I my first thought was, wow, they really nailed this place, like this weird stuff on the wall and like her games covered. And also there's a scene in that same episode where the neighbor swims by and she's this eccentric old lady. And I was just really struck by how this is exactly how it is. <laughs> and yeah. I was impressed. So I guess it, it, the first thing I, I wonder about that is like you had to have grown up at a cottage and I just wanted to talk a little bit about that, where that was and what your experience was. I can't imagine that you didn't have that experience and then sort of were able to sort of nail it to the extent that you did. Yeah, I did. And, and what's kind of wild is like, um, I personally, like my parents had a piece of land that they sort of bought with all of their friends mm -hmm. uh, on a small lake um, just outside of Shawville uh, in the Gatineau's called Fort Coulonge. And it was very uh, biker territory, which we found out later. <laughs> you know, very nice mix. Um, and so it was a very, I guess, like kind of early 80s sort of vibe where kids of different ages, but all sort of cottages built on it. Very, you know, um, sort of hippy dippy. All the kids would sort of play together. They would sort of self-monitor the parents, you know, making lunches or organizing games. So it had that kind of... Um, 
and, and for the kids, it was amazing. Like we didn't, but you know, the parents were partying, but we had no like zero idea what that was about. Right. Uh, it just meant like, oh, if we could get three glasses of wine into them, that meant that we could stay up later. Right, right. <laughs> this, was, like, this was for sure the 80s, I'm guessing. Yeah, this is the 80s. It's very yeah. different. Um, so it was a little, we're a little more feral. Yes. Uh, but also my grandparents had um, sort of a, a, a farm like outside of uh, about an hour and a half outside of Ottawa, which was on a lake and had like, had a little uh, like old barn and so, so sort of between the two and then friends of mine had cottages of course of, like on Meech Lake and then uh, also I you know went to summer camp in Georgian Bay so there you know there were lots of I really felt I got all of the the, the different sorts of flavors mm-hmm. of cottages um sort of the cottage politics, what to bring, the food, who organizes what lunches, the the coolers, like all of, so I really wanted to, uh, and then when I was putting together the writer's room, I wanted to have a reflection of not just like people with cottages, people who hadn't, like new writers who are, um, you know, like we had two black writers who didn't go to cottages uh, and or, or had gone, what was that different? We, you know, a Persian Iranian writer who like, was full on a Muskoka King, like mm-hmm. something. So it was like very, what was really great about cottaging is we were able to kind of look at it in many different ways from a very nostalgic, um, the warm place, also the way in which it keeps people's out. So really to find a way like to, uh, to, to look at cottaging for all that's great about it and all that's maybe problematic about it. And, mm-hmm. but ultimately, um, the connection with nature, the connection outside of the city, this like this idea of which was um, sort of the bedrock of mm-hmm. what everybody talked about, whether they'd just gone camping or whatever, but that feeling of unplugging, being with nature. Um, so, and, and ha- slower, like the slower sort of vibe of, of cottaging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, you said a lot of stuff in there that I'm interested in, in, in talking about the question I have for you there, uh, and you let on that it was a diverse writer's room. And I know at Cottage Life, we're often, Mm -hmm. we're trying harder and harder to represent different voices of people in cottage country. And the truth is it's difficult because it is a fairly uh, white culture and, and, and that's sort of the tradition. And we've, we've uh, sort of interrogated why that is in the magazine and, and on the podcast as well. Um, I'm, you're a queer man. So I'm interested in sort of understanding how you bring that representation into the show, which is great. Um, but was that a tricky thing given and that's not often reflected to you when you're looking at cottage country? It, it was, uh, it was tricky. And like, how do we make this feel? And, you know, sometimes we were successful, sometimes less, uh, um, because it is, it's not a total natural fit yet. There are stories, but, you know, just historically, um, you know, uh, who had access to be able to buy, like, and that's the thing too, like there's over 260,000 lakes, I think, in Mm -hmm. Ontario when we were Mm -hmm. doing some of our research. And so, you know, three generations ago for $8,000 or whatever, or six, you can buy a piece of land, put up a cottage, and then, you know, three generations later, it's worth um, millions. Millions. So how do you, so just the, the ability to access that kind of property, if, if you're a new Canadian or if you're coming from a tradition where it's not, it's not part of that sort of pioneer legacy. Yeah. Um, 
so we we looked for ways in which to integrate uh you know different diverse different representation but also to make it we didn't want to like have put a big finger on it we want because it's still what was important to us was we were a show about the cottage should be fun it was a comedy it had to be mm-hmm. breezy we didn't want to ignore it but we also didn't uh want to make the show about that. So we tried to find, you know, as a queer man, I knew I wanted to center my experience um, of a queer, of a queer man. And it's also, but to find characters like Opal, to find characters like Victor, to find, um, you know, characters like Billy, like that was, so how do we, uh, that would allow us these different access points to bring in um, different, people we don't see at the cottage Mm -hmm. how to get to unfold them into the story and and fold them in in a way where they're not um we're not ignoring where their cultural history is or what their background might be or how they come to the cottage but to see like very much in the first season it was about billy falling in love with nature and her falling in love with the lake and feeling ownership of it at the end like feeling Mm -hmm. that she's now part of it something mm-hmm. that she didn't feel part of but now she does at the end so like mm-hmm. that's that was very much kind of our way of of looking at how to um integrate those more uh diverse stories and to allow them you know t- to to expand the idea of what cottaging being in nature which is i think canadian it's not necessarily do you own a cottage it's do you have access to the outdoors do you have time money to to be able to spend with it Mm -hmm. and to husband it and ultimately to care for it so Mm -hmm. that's um so yeah i think those were sort of our guiding philosophies when we went into to try and build a story and and to look at how to look at representation yeah it's a it's a tricky thing i think um just so the audience doesn't know billy is herself a young black woman Mm -hmm. so that i think you know just in light of what you're saying i think that's important to understand and uh yeah, I thought it was all very seamless and and fantastic, actually, and funny. So let's yeah. talk about that. Um, this the series explores this idea of family, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, as you were saying earlier, family at the lake can be really complicated and sort mm-hmm. of ripe for dramatic comedy. So talk a little bit about that, about how you use that idea of family as the basis, mm-hmm. um, all sorts of different kinds of families, and how you sort of mind that for humor. Yeah. I, well, you know, family, it's, it's so amazing because you, um, when you go to the cottage, one of the things we used to, uh, we laughed about is that, you know, I live in Montreal or in a city and often you don't know much about the next door neighbor or the person who's living in the condo next to you or whatever. But in the lake, you know, everything about the person across the lake, you know, when they bought a new dock, you know, if they're staying out and partying because sounds travel, like, mm-hmm. so you know, so much about what's going on in the lake in the way that you never do kind of in the city, even though you have all of these miles and you're going to get away from people. So mm-hmm. there, there was something about that, which was always very funny. And um, for us family too, like, because you're, you're locked into these, you're going away to relax. And one of the things that I always thought like, uh, relaxing is really hard work. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, it can be if you're, you know, if you're a person who's used to go, go, go. It, it actually, it's a problem for a lot of people. Yeah. And there's this, so much pressure of like, we're going away to the cottage. We're going to get away. We're going to, and you know, can you decompress? And how people relax is very different. Like, yes. I just want to read my mystery novel. Oh, I want to be on my jet ski. I want to be like, so there's everyone's, there's something funny about everybody's way of like unplugging, getting on everyone else's nerves because everyone does it in a different way, which I mm-hmm. thought was very funny. 
but also that you know what I mentioned earlier about um, cottages being these these sort of temples, these reliquaries of of you know our childhood and our family legacy and and sort of our history. They carry some of our most carefree times. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that who gets it? Like the the bitterest stories, the things that have blown up families, were always who got the cottage. Yes. Like, Oh, I see it all the time. I, and I hear it all the time. I'm always sort of preaching to our audience, like, you need to get on this early, make a plan before the bitterness begins. And then you don't, you have no choices. You just do what was been told. And because it is, can be fracturing for the family, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like people just don't talk to. And so for me, that always felt um, like the most powerful, like my elevator pitch for the show was always wet, hot American succession. It's like, <laughs> It's that too. Yeah, it's got like the dumbness of Wet Hot American Summer. Like we wanted that kind of fun, but ultimately it's succession. It's who loves daddy, who gets the cottage, who mm-hmm. gets, who has the right to, you know, to vacate, to, mm-hmm. to stay in this property. Or, and very much, I think, for like Maisie May and Justin, often it gets drawn on sort of when you have families, people who remarry, it gets more complicated because mm-hmm. people have made investments into the property that, and they may not be blood related. But they, they have certainly spent money, spent time, done the upkeep, and you know their kids have gone there. Mm-hmm. And the other person, Justin, who just sort of comes in, is like, "Well, I had these great memories. I didn't do anything as a kid, but it's my family." Yes. So, so those kinds of uh, I, I thought like, and I they both have a point. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you're also touching on something else that again right. I've I've talked about before. Um, which is it, it's a strange thing. And there aren't many places in our culture, at least in Canada, where adults spend time sharing us, sharing space, sharing expenses, like adults who are maybe used to having their own, you know, calling all of the shots in their own lives, Monday to Friday, and then they end up at a cottage. And there they're sharing with their brothers or their sisters or their parents or whatever it is. That's a tricky thing to sort of switch back and forth between. You see it a little bit in this show because people have different lifestyles, different, um, you know, different times of waking up. Some have kids, some have don't. Like it's, it can be very tricky. And I think that's something that's not often acknowledged is that you think of the cottage as being this happy family place that holds our, our you know, most fond memories. And you're right. But it can be uh, hard at the beginning of the summer. You're, you're psyched to see all your family, to have all this time with them. And then by Labor Day, you're kind of like, that's enough. Like I need to get away and not hang out with my, all these adults in, in a shared space. Cause that can be very challenging. I think you touch on that a little bit with the show as well. Um, and particularly with succession. Yeah. And, and I, that's, I think it's, and also the way you regress because you're going mm, so true. To- <laughs> All your like weird childhood things. Yes. It's, it's a strange phenomenon. It's so true. Like the person who's like, you don't do your laundry or your mom does, or you're not cleaning in the right way or, you know, like wait. Not loading the dishwasher in the right way. That's a big one. (laughs) And you know, cause there's all, there's those two kinds of people, like some of them who either load the dishwasher, like what I read somewhere, like a Swedish architect or a a raccoon on meth. Like (laughs) I'm the Swedish architect time, but you know, my sister is a total like raccoon meth head. Right. That's the thing. And so that's like always one of our tensions of, you know, she's a force of chaos and I tend to be a little bit more ordered. Right. So, so funny. 
Yeah, and the cottage brings it out. Absolutely. Yeah. So I also wanted to talk a little bit about how the show is shot on location mm -hmm. in uh, around North Bay, uh, Trout Lake, yeah. I believe. So mm -hmm. gorgeous. So beautiful. I, you yeah. really, again, you nailed that too. So many beautiful shots. Yeah. Um, they really, you know, you want to be there. It's very traditional, classic Canadian shield yeah. stuff. Um, but you didn't use any sound stages. It was all shot on location. So tell me a little bit about that decision and, and why it was so important to the show. First season, definitely. Second season, we did build some sets. Because okay. um, first season, there's so much weather. In North. Right, right. So no rain cover shooting. So shooting on location, it was very important for us. Because this was um, a cottage show, and I knew that when we talk about Canadian cottage, there's an image that comes in people's minds, right? That not everyone was going to know. Uh, like there's a like an sort of a, a vocabulary, like an icono iconographic mm -hmm. vocabulary, mm -hmm. of, sure. and it's it's sort of like you know Pierre Trudeau in the canoe without the appropriation. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. like the the roots and old roots calendar. Mm -hmm. It's you know it, it like lives in that that kind of um, summer hazy. Like yeah, I wanted people to feel that heat, that August sort of heavy haze, mm -hmm. to sort of hear the cicada, like that whole. So I was, I knew I had to build a visual language for the show that was like, maybe not cottage country exactly as it is right now, but it's the one that we all have in our head when we mm. think what the cottage is. So shooting on location really helped us to do that, to have those big, beautiful wide shots of, of the cottage and down to the set deck, like make sure that when, you know, we were talking about those mugs earlier, like there was a, you know, going to uh, even going down to, um, you know, vintage stores to find mugs. Like they had to be mismatching. They had to look like they were, they came from a gas store or something. And like they bought it with gas in like, you know, 1987, like because mm -hmm. things have layered textured and history. So when we were shooting on location, we wanted to have those kinds of big, huge sweeping un like, unspoiled landscapes and sometimes it was harder than you think because to even find a cabin like the murder cabin or Maisie Mays cottage like like to find cabins that uh, and cottages that actually feel like they've been for around for a while because people keep rebuilding them they put the sort of the new super cottage mm -hmm. you know on the lake mm -hmm. so it was it was even though uh and North Bay was farther enough away so there's a few more a few more choices but it it did it did become really critical to to seek those locations find those that that had that nostalgic that had a bit of a vintage that had a bit of a, and then if we knew if we started from there because for Justin that's how he sees sort of how he remembers it so we and Maisie being a force of change like how to sort of be, then we could start to enter into those kinds of dynamics. But uh, shooting on location everywhere really had its challenges. I'm sure you de dealt with a lot of like mosquitoes for one yeah. and rain and yeah. just discomfort tornadoes. almost. Yeah. Tornadoes. Yeah. We had a tornado. Wow. Well, Something you yeah. probably did not plan for. We did not plan for. So we all had to go to a, like a muster station. And we're all, it was during the scene where uh, Opal and Justin are doing Moulin Rouge in and, and they're having like this, it was this beautiful, like, you know, sharing moment. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden, Go to your muster stations. <laughs> all of a sudden, hit the deck. What is a muster station? Like mustard? Like there's a lot of, like, <laughs> we had all ended up like in a basement in, a, in the summer camp we were staying at, sort of waiting for the tornado to pass. So, wow. It's to, yeah. You have to expect the unexpected in cottage country, that's for sure. But it did show. And I do think that it was, 
I mean, it's, if nothing else, I mean, the show's great fun, but it's also that visual escape that, you know, people come to Cottage Life for as well. So just look at pretty pictures and feel like you want to be there. And that you, again, you really nailed that aspect of it. So uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking, I'm curious, how does your child like the show? She loves it. Yeah. Yeah. Does she feel a little bit like, whoa, is too much or is it resonant? No, I think she, she loves it. She thinks it's very, um, it's cause it's, I mean, it's not us like in many ways, like I, uh, <laughs> um, you know, Justin, Justin is like a, a heightened version of me and Billy is sort of a, like a heightened version of, I right. feel, but it's what's true is the dynamic. Right. Like, so for what would, that was the most important was like our vibe, which is very like, certainly when she was younger, it was like, is he a big brother? Is he like mm. a, an uncle? Is he a dad? So like there, we were in this sort of gray zone of, you know, what's appropriate, what's, and also trying to figure out what our relationship, because we didn't have any models like, okay, like when you're a gay birth dad, who's coming out to their kid on Facebook, we're like, what's the, like, what what's is the roadmap for that? Like, yeah. the, like, I feel, you know, like, do I check in with her parents before I come out to her? But like, or do I, like everyone else knows, but I don't know if she knows, like, yeah. or, like there's all those, which are funny. Like, yeah. and, and <laughs> like, that's a good case of like I, I mean, i'm a person who makes jokes about things to make people more comfortable and i feel yeah. like that's kind of maybe what the show is doing is yeah. you're making jokes about things and i think dealing with a lot of issues um around the cottage as you've been mm-hmm. talking about with around succession but around families too that are difficult for people to talk about but if you you know use humor it makes it more relatable and i think you've done a really brilliant job of that with the lake so that's where I'll leave it today. Although okay. I feel like I could talk with you for a long time. I really appreciate it. And congratulations uh, you so on your season two and all the best. Oh my God. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for doing this podcast because I made all the writers listen and it's, it's one of our touchstones. So. Ah, that makes me so happy. Yeah. Awesome. Have a great summer. Take care. You too. Now, another word from our sponsor. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. I've spent a lot of time on the trail, and every backwoods trip is a chance to learn something new. And the most important lesson I've learned is that when you're in nature, you have to be ready for anything. And that's why you'll never see me in the woods without my off deep woods insect repellent. It's non-greasy, it doesn't stain, and it uses DEET for up to eight hours of protection against mosquitoes, ticks, black flies, and deer flies. Pack it for your next big adventure, and you'll be ready to embrace the trail without any distractions. Do you have a favorite mug that no one else is allowed to use at your cottage? How about a collection of old, faded paperbacks on a dusty shelf that you would never even dream of getting rid of? Is there a singing fish somewhere on the walls of your cottage? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you'll definitely relate to this next essay from our archives. I think it rings as true today as it did 30 plus years ago when it was first published in a 1991 issue of Cottage Life. Exploring the Golden Age of Kitsch is read for you now by Pedro Mendez. I won her at the CNE by tossing a dime onto a plate. Her arms and legs were stuffed tubes of cotton, about as big around as juice cans. Her plastic face hinted at some bizarre genetic conclave of Nancy, Sluggo, and W.C. Fields. 
She stood four feet high, and within a day of my snatching her from the steamy sequester of the Midway, I had transported her to Muskoka, named her Charlena, and sentenced her to year-round residence in the family cottage near Torrance. Not that we didn't consider her for full family accreditation, but our winter home was in a distant part of the province. With three kids, two adults, a cat, and untold volumes of cargo to transport between summer and non-summer, there simply wasn't room for her in our 54 Dodge Crusader. At any rate, I was a boy, she was a doll. Furthermore, she was the ideal cottage kitsch. Mildly exotic, unassailably tasteless, and, in the words of the thesaurus, useless, dysfunctional, and unavailing. So there she sat in the corner by the chimney, fading gradually, always smiling, thoroughly ignored. That is, until the summer of 1965, when, sitting across the room one night, I noticed a suspicious irregularity in her composure. Investigation revealed a family of mice had not only eaten the stuffing out of Charlena's head, wads of it, but had encamped there, in numbers, somewhere in the region of the pituitary gland. They, or their ancestors, had probably been there for years, but how could we have known? Charlena's enormous plastic face, the mind behind it consumed by rodents, smiled witlessly through it all. We wrapped her, mice and all, in a plastic sheet, packed her in the car, and drove her without sentiment to her final home among the shattered purchases and promises of the local dump. But Charlena's demise is neither the end nor the focus of my story. The huge rodent-infested doll merely leads to a question I wish to raise about a defunct era in Canadian cottaging. Is it just me, or is the junk and kitsch found in today's cottages, if indeed there is any true kitsch left, a lifeless shadow of the funkery junkery that gave spunk to the cottages of yesteryear? The answer lies in the evidence, and my urge to make a point notwithstanding, I have few vivid memories of the summer homes to which I've been introduced over the past 10 or 12 years. My impressions of most of them revolve around latter-day flatliners, such as ceiling fans, new bathroom fixtures, stainless steel sinks, vinyl flooring, pine paneling, aluminum windows, computerized alarm systems, heat elators, VCRs, and front decking. Fine features, fine cottages all, but somehow lacking the redolence of, say, Grace Framsworth Place at Glen Orchard, which, before it was sold and remodeled in 1964, housed a ghastly museum of stuffed mammals, reptiles, and birds. The little shop of horrors included a lynx, a massasauga rattler, a beaver, a heron, with a sunfish in its beak, as I recall, a snapping turtle as big as a car tire, and the pièce de résistance, a fair-sized brush wolf whose glass eyes, having fallen from its head, sat above it on the mantel, staring serenely from a mason jar. It was a cottage that tended to stick in your memory. Not to place inordinate emphasis on the marvels of taxidermy, I might note that Bob and Ellen Sutka adorned a wall of their cottage near Perry Sound during the late 50s with a four-foot by eight-foot depiction of the skyline of Toronto, created entirely of half-inch fishing nails banged into three-quarter-inch plywood. It was a horrid thing, Mrs. Sutka recalled last fall, but we spent so much time making it we just couldn't bear to throw it out. Whenever we had company, we used to cover it with a Navajo blanket. I hope you're not going to put it in your article. 
About a decade later, Barbara Church of Agincourt was adding her own impressive artifact to the Kitsch Hall of Fame by knotting together a macrame wall hanging that amalgamated some 50 mementos of an eight-month sojourn in Europe. The thing weighed 40 pounds, she recounts. In the bottom corners, it had these two big stones, one from John O'Groats in the north of Scotland, the other from the island of Rhodes. Oh, let me see. It also had an olive branch from Italy, a French wine bottle, a doorstop from Albert Hall in London, where I went to see Judy Collins, a plastic street sign from Carnaby Street, a map of the Paris underground, and a little pair of Dutch clogs. I think there was even a bag of peanuts from my flight over. I carried it in my pack for eight months. I hung this thing up in my bedroom until one night its fasteners pulled out and it came crashing down. My parents thought a burglar had broken in. Shortly afterwards, Barbara transferred the cherished tapestry to the most obvious depot, the family cottage north of Peterborough, where for nine years, nine years, it hung gathering dust until it again fell from the wall and from grace and was rudely dismantled. When my own family cottage burned to the ground in 1975, it has since been rebuilt, we lost items of distinguished junk too numerous and numinous to properly recount. Gone, one slightly disintegrated monkey head carved from an unhusked coconut and brought to Torrance from Tahiti as a good luck talisman shortly before the cottage burned. Gone, my great-grandfather's saddle, a pathetic puddle of cocoa-colored leather that surely could have offered no more comfort or protection than a deflated whoopee cushion. Gone, a large reproduction of the family coat of arms, bearing a dragon or wyvern, and the motto, Istof Prudentes, Beware Thyself. The true distinction of the piece lay in the materials from which it was constructed, cardboard, sequins, and the fairest conveyance of the heraldic craft, painted macaroni. Gone, a puffy, blood-colored baseball glove that hung above my bed and once belonged to Bruce Fleury, a boyhood hero who had a tryout with the Milwaukee Braves. Gone, a piece of driftwood shaped like bagpipes and an 18-inch pepper grinder. And what have we done to replace these riches? Nothing, dear reader, for you know as well as I that the golden age of cottage kitsch is defunct. Everywhere, tottering reliquaries have been transformed into model digs resembling outtakes from a home improvement manual. Even the libraries in today's cottages are a dim hearkening to the scuzzy bookshelves I remember as a kid. Authors with hairy backs and cigar breath, you could still smell it in the binding of the paperbacks. Writers like Louis L'Amour, Mickey Spillane, and the soul-stirring Minion G. Eberhardt have been supplanted by civilized practitioners such as Robertson Davies, Margaret Visser, and Carol Shields. It's not the compromising of the literature that smarts. It's the compromising of the effect of that literature. As far as actual reading goes, it doesn't matter what books are on the summer shelves, since people who read at cottages bring their own books from the city. The point is that cottage libraries used to be stacked with books that, if unread, inspired no sense of guilt. The virtue lay, rather, in not reading them, in never getting more than a paragraph or two beyond their steamy titles and lurid covers. And now, shame, they're being pushed aside by books we feel we ought to pick up and get serious about. I have never been much of an analyst or seer. Every September I call the leaves for the cup. But in observing how we have sophisticated ourselves out of the old style of junk husbandry, I have paused to wonder whether the cause lies in the mere march of civilization, or rather, in some specific of our time and place. 
Is it possible, for instance, that we find it less appropriate to exhibit junk in a $200,000 summer refuge than we did in the $8,000 cabin we owned in 1965? Or perhaps it's just that in decades past, cottage junk appealed to something marginal and needy in sensibilities dulled by the torpor of winter. It has been postulated by no less an authority than my sister that the months from October to May have become so hectic, bizarre, and overbulged that by the time we get to June, we want nothing more from cottage decor than orderly functionality. No coconut monkey heads, no macrame nightmares. Or could all this groveling after extinct junk be nothing more than rank nostalgia? 19th century poet William Cullen Bryant advised nostalgists to weep not over change. If the world kept a changeless, stable state, it would be cause indeed to weep. Change, of course, can be retrograde. While the only true junk repository at our own family cottage is now the boathouse, where ruined water toys are piled on useless deck chairs atop abandoned bedsteads, I have reason to believe that junk as an indoor sport may be making a comeback. Last summer, an aunt and uncle of mine had a cottage garage sale. During a half hour on the site, I watched strangers carry off everything from hopelessly rusted antique tools and inflatable goose decoys to old license plates and a large porcelain Donald Duck. One man bought a complete set of hubcaps for 39 Packard. Have you got a car for them? I asked as he was leaving. That's mine over there, he said, pointing to a vehicle that was distinctly no Packard. He said, last summer I was given hubcaps from a 46 Buick. They're on the wall of my cottage. That's where these are going. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining me. If you're enjoying this podcast and you don't know about our magazine, let me take a moment to tell you why you should subscribe to Cottage Life. First of all, the magazine offers you more of the same great content you heard today, including all of the things you don't know you don't know about life at the lake. And by supporting the magazine, you're enabling us to make this podcast. Podcast listeners get a special deal. Sign up today using the code cottagelife.com slash podoffer and you'll get six issues plus a free copy of the Cottage Logbook, a dedicated place to record all of the moments that make cottage living special. All this for just $24.95. Here's the code again, cottagelife.com slash podoffer. While I've got you signing up for things, please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast. That way, each new episode will automatically download to your app and will be ready for you to enjoy. We'll have new episodes every Thursday throughout the summer. And if you're loving it, please leave us a review. It helps more people find us. Our sound design is by Amanda Fusco. This podcast is produced by Catherine Jun and me, Michelle Kelly. I'll see you on the dock. Mm-hmm.